Our catechism question this morning is the last of a trilogy of questions that all start with, why did Jesus have to, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Steve dealt with why did Jesus have to be human? Last week, Matt dealt with why did Jesus have to be God? And today we're going to deal with how did, why did Jesus have to, be, have to die? And all three answers contain both a mystery and a marvel, all three of them. Uh, and the mystery sort of baffles us intellectually, and the marvel just, if we really hear it, astonishes us emotionally. Here's this morning's question and answer, and I'd like us to read the question and the answer together. Why was it necessary for Christ, the Redeemer, to die? Since death is the punishment for sin, Christ died willingly in to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God. By his substitutionary atoning death, he alone redeems us from hell and gains for us forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. Colossians 1, 21 and 22 are the verses that are tied to this catechism question. Uh, they say this, and you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And that highlighted word, it's not highlighted, is it? The word death, that word death, which should be highlighted, it was my bad up there, um, is what we're going to focus on this morning death. Now, when we ask the question, why did Jesus have to die? I have good news and bad news. <clears throat> the good news is we could give a 15-second answer, come to the table, sing a couple of songs, hear the benediction, and go chill out at Starbucks. The bad news is I'm not going to do that. Because <laughs> that answer would be simply this. It's what God wanted, it's what God planned, and it's what God did. Amen. That's actually six seconds. It was God's will from eternity past that that take place. And because of that will, he planned it also in eternity past. When Paul was speaking about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says this, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. The reality is this, in the mind and plan of God, the blood of Jesus was shed for us before the creation of the world. Jesus' death was not an afterthought. It wasn't like God was kind of trying to run around, keep up with Satan, and oh, he did that, I needed none of that. So why did Christ have to die? It's what God wanted, it's what God planned, it's what God did. But let's ask the question just a bit differently. Instead of, why did Christ have to die, make it, why did God in eternity past decide Jesus had to die? And the answer is because he knew something was going to happen that would require the Son of God to die. There are 31,102 verses in the Bible. You probably didn't know that. I didn't either until I looked it up. 
but you only have to read to verse 60 to find out what happened that caused God to have to make that decision. You remember Adam and Eve, right? Talk about having it all. And, and, and that all was declared by God to be very good. And I'm guessing when God says very good, we probably should read something like spectacular. Everything was there, and everything there was Adam's. Except one tree. One tree. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden, everyone, you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. You see, God had fashioned them as moral beings with the ability to choose to obey or not to obey the creator. And there weren't any real tricks to it. It, it, Nothing like, now look, you see that tree over there? You can eat its fruit on even-numbered days, of even-numbered months, of even-numbered years, as long as that morning you're up and showered before the sun breaks the horizon. There's, there's, there's none of that. None of that at all. It, it's, it's simple. Don't eat of the fruit of that tree. Well, as free moral beings, if they had been able to do always whatever they wanted to do, just as they pleased and had not had right and wrong set before them, they could have not been free moral agents. That had to be there for them to be able to make choices. And notice that it's it's not called the tree of good and evil, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, God did not want our first parents to experiment with evil to see what it was like. That tree was good for food. Eve saw that. But it was not good for man. So God said, don't eat of it. Well, you know the story. Lucifer, one of God's angels, rebelled, took the form of a serpent, tempted Eve to eat from the one disallowed tree, and instantly everything changed. They now knew good and evil. And all they could think of was, we have really blown it. We've got to find some fig leaves and hide. And the result was devastating. Look at the last phrase of God's command. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You sin, you die. They sinned, they died. And from then on, every human being in the line of Adam, which to date is estimated at about 110 billion, they'll die. Do you realize how many 110 billion is? To count from one to 110 billion at one number per second, nonstop. Now, you can't do that because you get to 304,209. You can't do that in a second. But let's just make it a second. To go from one to 110 billion nonstop, would take you back to sitting with Moses at the burning bush. 3,500 years. That's how long it would take you. If you want a secure career, become an undertaker. The result of sin for Adam and his posterity was one single word. It was death. But there's a problem. 
Adam sinned, and, but then he, he didn't die the way we normally think of death. So who was right? God who said, you eat that fruit, you're going to die. Or Satan who said, you're not going to die. God's just holding out on you. He's, he's a selfish God. I have two thoughts about that. Number one, the word die literally means dying, you shall die. Instantaneously, they began to die. They continued to live physically. But from that day on, their human bodies began to die, a process which eventually terminated in their last breath. Although Adam lived 930 years, death was certain for him from that moment on. Now, second thought is this. Death in the Bible does not mean annihilation. It doesn't mean the cessation of existence. Like when you die, you're just gone. Dilation means separation from God. Physical death, let, let's just say that, 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 uh, that, that uh, death means just separation. Let's just leave it there for a minute. It means separation. Physical death, let's talk about the two of them. Physical death is the separation of our spirit from our body, which leaves our body lifeless. And spiritual death, which we'll talk about in a minute, is separation from God. So there's a spiritual death. But in neither case do we cease to exist. On the day they sinned, Adam and Eve were invaded by a cancerous, sinful nature that they were not created with that caused a, a chasm, a separation between them and God. And on that day, literally, dying, they died. They died spiritually immediately on the sin. And they began to die physically that very moment as well. So there are two deaths. There are two separations. The first death for Adam and Eve was spiritual death. The cancer that ravaged their spiritual beings. I mean, when God showed up, they ran for cover. Why? Because their intimacy was gone. They were separated. They had walked with God in the garden. They had had this great fellowship with one another. But when they sinned, boom, separation took place immediately. Which, by the way, I think is the greatest tragedy of time and eternity. It just... But there's more. When God confronted Adam about what he had done, he basically said, why in the world did you ever decide to give me that woman? She's the culprit. Human intimacy was shattered. Now, when Adam and Eve got over that, when Eve got over what Adam was saying about her, and they made up, they had kids. And guess what? One of their sons murdered one of the other sons. And since that first family, everyone comes into the world that way, spiritually dead, separated from God, and relationally stunted. Now, we have had a lot of babies around here in the last few years, a lot of babies. And if you're one of those, you probably thought, oh, my baby is so cute and innocent, she'll never... And then she did. And you didn't even have to teach her to do bad things. God warned Adam and Eve that if they sinned, they die, and they did, not physically immediately, but spiritually. And since then, we're all born just like that, dead spiritually. I know it's hard to think about your little baby that way. But that little baby, as cute as it is, and I've had three of them. Jan and I have had three of them. We've got seven grandkids, three great grandkids. I mean, everyone was born dead spiritually. 
Now, eventually their second death occurred. Their spirit fled their bodies and, and left those bodies physically lifeless. And today, by the way, today, this day, over 151,000 people will take their last breath. Uh, in the next hour, over 6,300 will die. Every minute, well over 100 die. And every second, two people somewhere take their last breath. Death. So Adam and Eve experienced two deaths, but there's a third death, a, a worse death than that. The Bible refers, it, refers to it as the second death, and I'll explain that difference in just a minute. The second death is the, uh, explained in Revelation 21.8. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, it's called the second death... Follow me now. It's called the second death because no person after Adam actually experienced Adam's first death, spiritual death. We come into the world spiritually dead. So our first experiential death is our physical death. You with me? Shake your head yes or no. Shake it. I need to see. Okay. Because I was telling this to Jan yesterday and it sounded kind of, what? What? You talking about? You see, if Adam and Eve had never responded to God in faith, they would have been the only humans to experience three deaths. They experienced spiritual death, they experienced physical death, and if they had not come to faith, they would have experienced eternal death, which the Bible calls the second death. Now, I believe they came to faith because of a number of reasons in the book of Genesis, but that's for another day. So this second death is an eternal death. For us, it is when God finally sends the unrepentant sinner to that place of utter darkness where the Bible describes it as the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, remember, our physical death is not because of our sin. It, no, it is. It is surely because of our sin, but it does not pay for our sin. You're not going to die physically and pay for your sin. The second death, which comes at the end of time, is the payment. It is the final, complete, and ultimate separation from God, eternal death. No reprieve, no second option, no escape hatch, no purgatory. Look at it this way. Sinners die physically in their sins, but eternally for their sins. Unless they accept what God has done for them. So death is a huge issue. And it's going to have a lot to do with how we ultimately answer the question, why did Jesus have to die? And why did God decide that Jesus had to die? Who here has not heard of Frank Sinatra? That is amazing. Um, of course, Jan and I lived with him. I mean, you know, we, we were there. Um, he's a vocal icon out of the decades from the 40s to the 70s. And, you know, a lot of famous vocalists... Uh, end up with one song that they become associated with over time. Does anybody know what that is for Sinatra? Oh, wow. Yeah, and you know, he did that in the 70s. That was at the end of his career is when he recorded that. Now, I was tempted to play the whole thing just to show how bad it is, but I'm just going to read. I'm just gonna, here's, here's just a taste of the words. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway, but more, much more than this, I... For what is a man? What has he got? 
If not himself, then he is not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels, the record shows I took the blows and I did it. Now, if you know anything about his life, you know that he did do it his way. From all accounts, a very bad way, but his way. But you've never probably heard his last gasping words. Just before he breathed his last, Sinatra said to a family member, I'm losing. Now, when you say you're losing, you're also implying that you could have won. In this case, that life could have won over death. I suspect that old, what was he called? Old what eyes? You guys are Sinatra aficionados. Holy cow. What? You're older. But these are younger people saying the same thing. I don't don't get it. I suspect that old Blue Eyes was in touch with something fundamental in the human soul. That aching sense that we were made for life, not death. That may be why... uh, as death approaches, so many people ask this question. Is this all there is? You've probably had kids, or maybe you as a kid, who after getting just about a U-Haul full of presents on Christmas morning or Christmas Eve, whenever you do it, still say, that it? Is this all there is? Charlie, you're really with it this morning, man. I'm not that far behind you, are Yeah, okay, okay. Now, that sounds dreadfully ungrateful, doesn't it? But what if they had been promised a new puppy, but so far had only unwrapped lifeless stuffed dogs? Then the question, is that all there is? Isn't ingratitude, but it's an expression of of an unmet expectation. And if we sense that we've been promised life, then asking at death is Is this all there is? Makes sense. Because we were never intended for death. And somehow deep down inside, we sense that. So if there's one word that describes our misery as a human race, it's it's the word death. It hangs over us like a a dark cloud. And if if there were to be any hope for us along the way, death had to die and stay dead so we could live life like we sense it should be lived. Now, physical death is not an option for us. We will die. Um, But to make sure that we don't, follow me here, that we don't physically die and then be raised when Jesus comes back and then somehow in the future physically die again, for that not to happen, physical death had to be killed. And Jesus killed that death, physical death, by walking out of the tomb on Sunday morning. Hallelujah. But then there's the other death, our eternal spiritual death. It also had to be killed. And there's the good news. Because in the presence of that horrid, horrid bleakness and blackness of the first sin in the Garden of Eden, God stepped forward and he began to give his initial hints of the one and the only one option to eternal death. He made a provision and he made a promise. The provision is this. Remember the fig leaves to cover their vital parts? They meant absolutely nothing to God as a covering for their sin and shame. It didn't, didn't do a thing. 
Genesis 3.21 says this, And after God saw them that way with the fig leaves, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, he killed an animal. Now, we're not told what kind of animal it was. Maybe a lamb for the first picture of the lamb? Supposition. Don't know. Regardless, the first death ever in creation has to do with a covering for sin. God is beginning to reveal what forgiveness will entail. Hebrews 9.22, later, the scriptures say, without the shedding of blood, which is death, there is no forgiveness of sins. Uh, even in, way back in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, you know, after the garden, a number of years, we read this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So God made provision there, and then he made a promise in the garden. Genesis 3.15. And he cursed Satan. As, as he cursed Satan, he said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring, plural, and her offspring, singular, which is Jesus. He, Jesus, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus will be injured, but Satan and death will be killed. Satan and death, they go together. Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So why did Jesus have to die? To pay for sin? Absolutely. But even more basic, he had to do what we would have had to do if he hadn't done it for us. If Jesus had found a way to sort of beam himself off this planet and sort of neatly sidestep any kind of a death experience, then he couldn't be considered like us and he would have become ineligible to pay our price. Because the payment for human sin was human death. Jesus had to leave this world via death for the same reason he had to enter this world via a woman's uterus. Because that's how all people get here and death is how all people get out of here. Because Jesus, the Son of God, had entered the entirety of human existence and experience so he could pay for the entirety of our guilt. He had to be one of us to stand in our place. So as a human, he died physically and killed physical death forever by overcoming it on Easter Sunday morning. But he also died spiritually to provide a way for us to miss the second death, to only die once. In his spiritual death, he carried all of the sin the Father could lay on him. In fact, Paul says that he not only carried our sins on us, on, on himself, like he's carrying a backpack with all of our sins in it. it it's, it's more than that. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he wasn't just carrying our sins. He became sin. He became an idolater. 
He became an adulterer. He became a liar. He became a murderer. And in return, you and I, we're we're called sinless. We're called perfect with God's righteousness now surging through our veins. It's unimaginable. it's, It's almost unbelievable, right? And that spiritual death happened when he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If God had answered that cry, it may have sounded something like this. It's because you're standing in the place of those whom I have given to you. You must make full payment for their sin. And that payment is spiritual death, my son. It is separation from me. Jesus drank in our hell on our behalf. Our death died on Calvary. Now, how did this unspeakable horror of that three-hour separation in total darkness on the cross actually happen? Did Jesus, the person, die? Yes. Uh, Did God die? No. Matt was crystal clear about that last week. The God nature of Jesus could not die. If he had, the world at that instant would have fallen apart because Jesus as God is holding this whole place together. He takes his hands off of it now, and it's over. We're gone. Plus, God is life. It isn't that God has life in him as as one attribute. He is life in his essence. So if any death creeps into God at all, then God is not life, and then God is not God. And we might as well not even say amen now. We just get up and walk out of here and go do whatever we want. I said at the beginning that the truths we've been looking at the past three weeks have both marvel and mystery. Uh, this is the mystery part of the death of Jesus. How did that all work? Who died? Well, one person died, Jesus, but, but he was both God and man. Did God, God, no, God didn't die. Did, yeah, he, I don't get that. And frankly, uh, I'm at the place in life where I prefer to just simply let that rest. This is a mystery not to be solved. But there are words that can be spoken not to help us grasp intellectually, but to help us feel emotionally what took place. That way we leave both the mystery and the marvel in place. And I don't think I've ever read anything more compelling than these words by Scottish theologian Donald MacLeod. In the moment of the son's greatest need and greatest pain, God is not there. The son cries and is not heard. The familiar resource, the the ultimate resource is not there. The God who was always there, the God who was needed now as he had never been needed before, was nowhere to be seen. There was no answer to the son's cry. There was no comfort. Jesus was left godless, with no perception of his own sonship, unable for the one and only time in his life to say, Abba, Father. There was nothing but that why, trying vainly to bridge the darkness. He was sin. He was lawlessness. And as such, he was banished to the black hole where lawlessness belongs and from which no sound can escape. But why? That was the son's only word in his final agony as he reached out to God whom he needed to desperate, needed desperately, but, but whom as sin he couldn't discern and from whose presence he was outcast. There could be no accord. He had to be dealt with not as son, but as sin. 
Author Christopher Wright wrote this, in the mysterious infinity of that time, earthly hours, but an eternity in its depth and significance, Jesus experienced what hell is. Now, John 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Uh, the three words up there, I don't know if they were highlighted or not, but finished, fulfill, and finished are, are virtually the same word in the original language. They, they mean achieved, completed. Filling Jesus' mind when he was on the cross was the sense of accomplishment. He wasn't dead yet, but he knew it was just right around the corner. That is what his father had sent him to do. That had been, as we saw, the plan from all eternity. In fact, he himself had said during his ministry, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life to die a ransom for many. And now here in this passage are the last minutes, maybe the last seconds of that journey. But have you ever thought about how many times others had tried to stop Jesus from getting to this place? Herod tried to kill him as a baby. Satan tried to bribe him to avoid the cross and the temptation. When Jesus told his disciples that he was on his way to die, Peter said, that's not going to happen. His own mother and family tried to sidetrack him. Then there was his inner battling in Gethsemane. At his arrest, he could have called an angel battalion to save him. Pilate tried to release him. Pilate's wife tried to dissuade her husband from his final decision. The criminals on the cross tried to get him to save himself and them. But nothing derailed him. Nothing derailed him on his march to the cross and death. He was in charge. That's what he came to do. In fact, look at verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus did not just expire. He, he did not just lose his life. He chose the moment, and then he consciously gave up his life, finishing the task he had come to do. In fact, earlier in his ministry, he had said about his life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. So why did Jesus have to die? Because death was the result of sin. And if God was to rescue us sinners, he had to kill death in such a way that it would stay dead. And Jesus was the answer. As that perfect human, he tasted physical death, but in three days arose killing physical death. And as a perfect human, he entered the horror and the hell of spiritual death for three ungodly hours, satisfying the brutal wrath of God against sin. That was not his. And he killed spiritual death. It is finished is one word in Greek. And when Jesus uttered that one word, he gave the one word he had pointed toward from all eternity. I mean, this, this was not a new thought to Jesus that he was going to have to die. I mean, this was from eternity. 
And it's the one word on which the Christian message hangs. Finished. God had hinted at it and given pictures of it since Genesis 3, and here on the cross it, it took place. And we, we now live in an interesting period of time. It's, it's been called the already but not yet period. The scriptures tell us it is finished. That's the already. But it's not quite concluded. That's the not yet. We're just waiting for the final results to be worked out of the it is finished. Uh, we see that in the book of Revelation. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's all part of the not yet thing. Then six verses later, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. This is also the not yet part. But it's coming as surely as that sun will set tonight. But come back to today. Even though we live in a not yet period, we live under the banner of finished. You know, living in this already period with its it is finished, I know that when I, when I think of and meditate on and, and complicate, uh, contemplate the cross, I have to still remind myself that Jesus hung there because of me. It was my fault and your fault. That is reality. But I also, when I look at that cross, I, I, I must see myself included in what he did there and what he declared at the end. It is finished. So I put him there and that can just, I mean, that can just knock me down but he said it, it, it's finished that also is reality it seems too good to be true doesn't it but it is that means that there's nothing left for me to do to gain favor with God Steve drove this home so powerfully two weeks ago when he said that because of what Jesus did, God is able to justly turn his wrath away from us and to justly, he didn't just pull a hat trick, to justly turn his favor toward us. That is reality. I'm guessing some of you will identify with me here. At times I think something like this. If I just do this certain thing, a good thing, I'll deserve a bit more favor from God. Or, uh, if I don't do this certain other thing, a bad thing, uh, maybe he'll love me just a tad more. That is not reality. That is so wrong. Have you ever started to pray and had the thought, you know, the way my life has been 
going lately, spiritually especially, I, I just don't deserve for him to even listen to me, let alone respond to me. And then here, here's, here's the way I think. Maybe in a couple days I'll be in better shape spiritually. And I'll feel more deserving about talking to him. And he'll feel that I deserve more to be listened to. That also is not reality. That is so wrong. And I'm guessing I'm not the only one in the room that deals with something like that. You know what reality is? I have never deserved him to listen to me. And I will never deserve him to listen to me. The issue is not deserving. The issue is receiving. Receiving what can never be earned, only given. Of course, we are called to obey God, for, for sure, but not to get something from him because of that obedience. We, we obey him because we, we love him, not to appease him in some way. That's been done. It is finished. And of course, when we sin, we, we feel proper guilt and maybe even shame and and we properly admit those sins to him, and we confess them, and we, we want to repent of them, but it's not to pay some sort of price. It's been paid. It is finished. All the guilt of all the sin of all my life died. It is finished. The old hymn says, my sin Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. I want to go back and read a little bit of, of that quote from John Chrysostom that uh, Matt read. I didn't see it until this morning, and we talked about it, and we determined it was worth twice. Let no one weep for his iniquities, for pardon has shone forth from the grave. Let no one fear death, for the Savior's death has set us free. He that was held prisoner of it has annihilated it. By descending into hell, he made hell captive. He, he angered it when it tasted of his flesh. And Isaiah, foretelling this, did cry, Hell said he was angered when it encountered thee in the lower regions. It was angered, for it was abolished. It was angered, for it was mocked. It was angered, for it was slain. It was angered, for it was overthrown. It was angered, for it was fettered in chains. This is how Paul says it. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Chrysostom ended his quote with, Christ is risen, and you, hell and death, are overthrown. Christ is risen, and the demons are fallen. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life, life reigns. Is that mysterious? Oh, yeah. Is it marvelous? Oh, my.
I want to close with a uh, 400 to 500 year old prayer. Would you pray with me? Oh, divine redeemer, great was your goodness in undertaking my redemption, in consenting to be made sin for me, in conquering all of my foes. Great was your strength in enduring the extremities of divine wrath, in taking away the load of my iniquities. Great was your mercy in accomplishing the work your Father gave you to do in saying on the cross, it is finished. Great was your love in manifesting yourself alive, in showing your sacred wounds that fear might vanish and every doubt be removed. Great was your wisdom in devising this means of salvation. Bathe my soul in rich consolations of your resurrection life. Great was your grace in commanding me to come hand in hand with you to the Father, to be knit to him eternally, to discover in him my rest, to find in him my peace, to behold his glory, to honor him alone who is worthy. And great was your grace in giving me the spirit as teacher, guide, power, that I may live repenting of sin, conquering Satan, finding victory in life and death. And all God's people of Roswell community agreed together and said, Amen. Amen. If at this moment you are here and could not say amen with us at the end of that prayer, because you know that your destiny, as of right now, is the second eternal death, you can change your destiny. By placing your faith in the death of Jesus that we've been talking about this morning, you can look forward to an eternity of life that you have never experienced rather than an eternity of death like you'll forever wish you had avoided. If you do that this morning and, and you just need to talk to him, you just need to say, I want to be yours and I want you to be mine. I need you. I can't, I, I, I can't save myself please. If you do that this morning, then you also are invited with the rest of us who have already done that to this mysterious but marvelous table. Jesus killed death forever. Weekly, this table reminds us of that. Praise be the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, the Trinity of our salvation our life, and our hope. Come and be fed.